So funny, I went to a restaurant the other day and I paid with cash, which is, you know, I mean, like, who does that but dinosaurs, you know? And, and they gave me the change and I'm like, I got these coins. I thought, I don't even want to put this in my pocket. So I just carried it back to my office and right now the coins are on the floor in my office. I was like, let's wash my hands. It's not easy being me, Ryan, so better to stay you. All right. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you guys. I want to say good morning to you guys who are online, and we are so sorry last week. We know you tuned in, and we weren't here. We, we were here, but we were not there. And uh, so we are in the process of upgrading a bunch of things technological at the church. You've noticed the difference here in this room, uh, but you're going to begin to notice the difference online as well. Some of that came in this week, and so hopefully we have a more reliable and excellent experience for you online. Uh, but that's going to continue to be upgraded over the course of the next few weeks because this is an important part of our ministry. However, I do want to say to you online uh, that if you are not out of town and you really don't have any reason not to be here other than it's just easier to stay at home, you should come to church. Christianity is an embodied experience, and it is a congregating faith. And I can't get into everybody's sensibilities and all of that, and I'm leaving that up to you, and you've got to manage that. Um, But if it's just a matter of convenience, please come. We'd love to see you. I'd love to see you. And we would be encouraged by your worship, even as we are by everybody else who's been coming. So anyway, just throwing that out there. All right, so today we are continuing in our study of the book of Isaiah, and we are coming to the second of four different songs. We looked at song number one last week, so if you missed it, that's online. I'd encourage you to go watch that. But it's the second of four songs that God, through the prophet Isaiah, sat down and wrote and then put into the book of Isaiah. So the author of the songs is God, which is awesome. It's a great gift to us, and the reason for that is because what is a song if not a window into the heart, into the soul, into the mind of the songwriter, who in this case is God? And so as we talked about last week, and as we'll see again, okay, if you want to know what moves God's heart, if you want to know, guys, what occupies his mind, what stirs his soul, he's like, well, I wrote some songs. Look at them. And what did we see last week? Because we'll just keep saying it. We'll see that what God, that moves God's heart, what occupies God's mind, what stirs God's soul is the salvation of God's people through the work of God's servant. And who is God's servant? Because the whole Bible makes it absolutely clear his servant is Jesus, which raises the question of, okay, yeah, but if you just go back, you know, rewind that statement a little bit, okay, it's the salvation of God's people. How do I know if I'm one of God's people? The answer to that is by what you do with the servant. It's really by what you do with Jesus. I mean, do you come to Jesus and say, yeah, I think you can stay over there and reject Jesus, reject Jesus, reject Jesus, and in the end, just like walk away entirely from Jesus? Or at some point, do you say, oh my goodness, you know, I mean, I've heard about you. Maybe I've heard a million sermons on you. I can tell people what the gospel is, even though I've never believed it. I've never been attracted to you. But now I find you beautiful. I I find you needful. I find you irresistible. And gladly now do I come, not with resignation, not with, oh, okay, I guess I'll do that. But like, wow, you'll have me? (laughs) Answer, yes. He takes all comers. The answer to the question of how do I know if I'm one of God's people is, well, what do you do with God's servant? Do you send him away? Or do you run into his arms? Because that's how he's postured. He's like, come on, it's all good. What moves God's heart, what occupies his mind, 
What stirs his soul is the salvation of God's people through the work of God's servant who is Jesus. And then we said there are two questions that every one of these songs, including again the one that we'll look at today, ask. And that is, first of all, I mean, have you personally experienced the salvation that Jesus came into this world to bring? And if you have, all right, well then, is Jesus' mission what moves your heart? Is it what occupies your mind? Is it what stirs your soul? Like it just grabs you at the deepest part of your being and says, yes, is that you? Because if I can just speak plainly for a minute, and I told the worship team, I'm going to have these like plain speaking moments in this message today. I said, I'm tempted to just call it like plain talk Sunday. And what I want you to hear in the plain talk is not, you know, nine more things now that you have to go do. And, oh, and you need to do it because, I mean, this is what responsible people do or good Christians do or I feel guilty, therefore, forget all that. What I want you to hear in them is an invitation of grace, of mercy that's exciting. Look, here's the deal. What moves his heart, what occupies his mind, what stirs his soul, if you're a Christian, okay, should have the same effect on me and you. Can we just agree with that? Like biblically, we're like, yep, okay, can't argue with that. What's the invitation? Jesus is coming to us and he's inviting us into life with him. He's saying, come, I want you to come and get to know me and walk so closely together with me that that organically in relationship with me, what happens is I take you over and it's beautiful. My heart becomes like your heart or really vice versa. Your mind like my mind, your soul like my soul. And you don't have to go out and do anything. You get to go out and do all kinds of wonderful things. And in the doing of it, you get to go do it with me. It's pretty awesome. So the plain talk is an invitation. Listen out for it. All right, song number two, we find in Isaiah chapter 49, beginning in verse one. But here's the deal with song number two. When we come to this song, we don't hear, like we did last week, the singing voice of God the Father, all right? So that's who sang last week. Today, we hear the singing voice of Jesus Christ the servant. And here's what Jesus is doing in this song. Again, it's written 700 years before he's even born. He's looking forward in time to his birth, to his life, to his suffering, to his death, to his burial, to his resurrection from the dead. In other words, he is understanding comprehensively of what his life on earth will be like and what his mission on earth will be like. And he's seeing that it's going to be different from what everybody expects. They're all expecting this. It's not going to be that going to be this. And why does that matter to us today? I mean, you know, we live 2,000 years post all of that. It matters to us today because, again, if our hearts are like his, if our mind is like his, if our souls are like his, if our mission is his mission, if we are the spirit-filled people of God in this earth, if Jesus has a body in this earth and it's mine and it's yours, it's all of us collectively, then our mission, again, is his mission and our lives should, hear the invitation in that, be different In all the same ways. So how is his mission different? Song 2 begins in Isaiah 49, verse 1. Jesus singing, and he says this. He says, listen to me, but now notice who he's singing to. He says, O coastlands, which as we saw last week is a reference to all the nations of the world. He's like he gathers up all the nations of the earth, and he says, listen to me. I have a message for you. He says, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Okay, that's different. It's not what the people in Isaiah's day and Jesus' day and pretty much any religiously observant Jews in any day thought. They thought that the Jewish Messiah was going to come, and yes, he's going to have a message. 
but just for the Jews. He's going to have a mission, but just to the Jews. He's going to bring deliverance, but just to them. And Jesus is like, no, I'm coming for everyone. And 700 years later, after he's born, after he lives, right, after he suffers, after he dies, after he's buried, after he's risen from the dead, on the third day, just as he, and remember, he's God, said that he would be. He gathers all his disciples together on the Mount of Olives, and he says, all right, so guys, I got a mission for you. Okay, so here's the deal. We're in Jerusalem, so we start here. I want you to take this message of salvation that is found through faith in me alone, like I am the only one who has an infinitely valuable life, for I am the only one who is God-made man, and I am also the only one who has a perfect life to offer as a substitute for the guilty people who come to me and say, I want that. I'll take that substitute. I want what he did for me to pay my debt to you. Nobody else has claimed that. He's like, look, I got a message. That's it. I want you to take it. We'll start in Jerusalem. It's where we're at anyway, but we're going to go out. We're going out, people. So we're going to go out from here to Judea. That's the surrounding area. Okay, then we're going to go out from here to Samaria. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. Hang on a second. Do we have to go to Samaria? Can we just go around Samaria? Because like for hundreds of years, our people have been going around Samaria because we hate those people who are Samaritans. Jesus is like, there is something powerful enough to heal that. To take your sworn enemies, people who you can't stand, they're so different from you in every possible way. Like, oh, I'd talk to anybody before I talk to them. That's the Samaritans. And make them your brother. Make them your sister. Make them your friend. Jesus is like, you're underestimating the power of my gospel. Don't do that. It's a mistake. So Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then, and I quote, to the ends of the earth. Everywhere, everyone, to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what these guys did. Because what moved God's heart moved theirs. What occupied his mind, his thoughts, their thoughts. His soul, their soul. They're like, well, all right. The Spirit came, he filled them, and they went. All over the place. It's remarkable. And what a privilege. So a couple of years ago, I I did this walk. It's a 500-mile walk, and I just want to pause and let you kind of, you know, because I know that's sort of a weird way to start a conversation. You know, I did a 500-mile walk. You're like, whoa, can we just stop for a minute? Because we just learned all kinds of things about you. You organize your money in your wallet. You won't touch coins. You walked for 500 miles. What kind of a weirdo are you? I don't know. Just keep coming. We'll find out, okay? So I did this 500-mile hike across northern Spain. It's called the Camino de Santiago, and you can see a map of it up here and see where it is. But, uh, but the deal is it begins, as you can see, up on the border of France and Spain, and then it walks mostly west all the way to the city of Santiago on the other side of Spain where the remains of St. James are at least allegedly Uh, contained in this really fancy silver thing that I got to see. And for 1,200 years now, people have been doing this. And the question is, how, why? Well, in my case, it wasn't to see the remains of St. James. In other words, I didn't walk 500 miles to see the remains of St. James, but there have been people who have been funneling through Europe, through France, getting on the Camino at that location, and then all of them going all the way there um, because they think that you can get credit with God for seeing relics. I, I don't think that that's the case. The reason that I went and did it 
is because I thought, man, I just need to get away from everything. I need to get away from everyone. I need to take a mental break completely and totally. And somebody in this congregation had done this. And I thought, man, that is the coolest sounding thing ever. And so I went. And it was beautiful and amazing. And so I think there's a picture of, of Beth and I there. She came in Lyon, which is about halfway. She's the really cute one with the floppy hat. And uh, that's awesome, right? Like, she's adorable. And just to give you an idea of how beautiful it is, we can go to the next picture. Uh, you can just see the, the path that we were on and see the mountains. And then we've got another picture, I think, that kind of spells it out. And that was a lot of the kind of countryside that we walked through, which was, was really awesome. Uh, but the question that I'm sure you're wondering, other than, Tom, where did you get the money to do this, is this. Um, it's how did St. James' remains get to Spain? Well, let's go back to the map for a second. That's where Finisterre comes in. You can see Finisterre all the way on the coast, the westernmost point, by the way, not just of Spain, but of all of Europe. It's the westernmost location. So the word Finisterre comes from two Latin words, and, and together what they mean is literally the end of the earth. So the idea, at least according to tradition, is that James, the brother of John, one of the three most intimate disciples of Jesus, Peter, James, and John, is there on the Mount of Olives with Jesus when he says, look, I want you to take my gospel all the way to the ends of the earth. And James is like, well, I mean, if I'm going west, I know where that is. This is a picture of Beth and I actually at Finisterre. We didn't walk to Finisterre. We got to Santiago. We're like, listen, we're done. Okay, so we're taking a van and we're going on a tour. And they took us to the end of the earth. That's what it looks like. It's beautiful. Really amazing. James went to Finisterre. Thomas went the other direction. He took the gospel to India to the east where he was martyred. And so the idea is that St. James' remains are in Spain because that's where he took the gospel. And just like all of the pilgrims that walk all along that route like Beth and I did, uh, these guys who took the gospel to Spain or to India or anywhere else in the world mostly walked and so here's what I want to do. I, I want to challenge you to take a walk. And I don't want you to walk to Spain. I want you to walk across the street. Plain talk, right? I want you to walk across your office. I want you to walk across your cafeteria. I want you to get in a car because let's just be honest, it's too doggone hot to walk very far. Probably it's dangerous. And make an appointment to meet somebody for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner, for coffee. Just go visit them. Say, hey, invite them over to your house. You know, let them walk over to you. Whatever the case may be. And I want you to walk with this kind of missional purpose where the mission is we're going to talk about Jesus. I'm going to share with you how he's changed my life or whatever it is, however you arrange. I'm going to invite you into Alpha. You know, Thursday nights, love to see them and you. The people of faith are a walking people. And here's what I'm going to say. If or when you do that, it's probably going to be a different conversation from what they're expecting from you. Okay, that's not the plain talk part. The plain talk part is if or when you do that, you will prove yourself to be different from almost everyone in the American church. And the plain talk 
is that that is a testimony to our sickness, not our health. When you look at what normative Christianity is in the Bible, it doesn't look at all, for the most part, like what we experience today. People were being saved daily because these were a walking people. These were a talking people. These were a righteously living people. These were people who lived in such a way, as Peter said, that people were coming to them and asking them the reason for the hope that was within them. We need to get back to being those kinds of people. And I'm talking, too, to myself. And there's an opportunity in that, guys. There's an opportunity to step out nervously and to do something scary and to either see God work in and through that by giving you courage or by inviting somebody into life and then transforming their lives, which is, by the way, transformative and encouraging to you. Or there's an opportunity to step out and do something scary and be rejected. And in that rejection, to be able to come to a Savior who, as we'll see in a minute, understands what rejection is like and is uniquely capable of comforting his people when they're rejected. There's an identification with Jesus in that. In other words, in the doing of this, there's opportunity for great spiritual gain. So again, Jesus says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar, because I have a message for everyone near and far. And what is the message? He says, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named me, and then he armed Jesus with a weapon for the mission. And notice what the weapon isn't. It's not a physical sword, but it is a sword of a sorts. He says, he that God the Father made my mouth like a sharp sword. So what does he arm Christ with? It's the same thing that he arms us with. It is the word of God. You're like, I need more than that. No, you don't. God by his word spoke and then the worlds came into being. It's by his word that he creates everything, including faith in our own hearts. Jesus is like, he's armed me for the mission. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me until like a sword, I was ready to be unsheathed. And in his quiver, he hid me away until I was ready to be taken out, placed upon the bowstring and shot out into the world. And listen, this too is different. And it stands as a challenge, not just for the people of God in Jesus' day, but for us today. And I say that because here's what they all expected. They expected the Messiah to ride up on a white horse with an actual sword. They expected that the Messiah would come and that he would politically and militarily extract them from the grip of Rome, reestablish their nation. In other words, their greatest value was nationalistic. It was the nation state of Israel, if you will. What's your greatest value? Okay, plain talk. I think over the course of the last year, year and a half, the American church has proven itself to be far and away more American than Christian. I think that's been our greatest value. I think that our politics have completely pulled us off mission. I think they've distracted us. I think they've divided us from each other for starting. I can give you names, which I won't, believe me, people are going, oh no, I wouldn't do that, but I can give you names of people who have left this church because of political stuff that were posted and whatnot by people in this church that they simply didn't agree on. And by the way, leaving is not the way to handle it. That's not right. That's not biblical. It's not the way to do it. But it's the truth. 
I think we've divided ourselves from a community full of people who disagree, generally speaking, and we've got a wide variety of opinions here, but we're semi-homogenous politically, I would say, but who disagree with our politics. And because that's all they're seeing and hearing from us, they're not going to listen to Jesus, and yet our mission is reach them. It's a problem. I think the most damning evidence, and you can apply this to your own life, I've been doing this all week, I'm not immune to this. The most damning evidence is how much time and effort did we spend over here on politics, watching it, reading it, listening to it, obsessing over it, and how much with Jesus? How many conversations did we have in the last year, year and a half with people about politics? How many conversations about Jesus? How many posts did we put up on Instagram or Facebook or whatever? And by the way, and please, I'm sorry, I know I'm on the thin ice. I don't think those accomplish anything other than alienating people because we are all so settled in whatever opinion it is that we have that we're not going to be persuaded by any post, any article, any argument or anything. We're not even open to persuasion. It just hardens us in the opinion we already have, and it separates us from you. But how much of that? How much of this? How much passion over here? How much passion about the kingdom that will never end? And and as I say these things, don't hear me saying that this isn't important. I think it's immensely important. Honestly, I have a lot of passion for this. I just mask it, to be frank because I have to subordinate it to the real mission. And the real mission with the days that I have left and the days that you have left, and who knows how many days that is, really, is to proclaim a Savior who saves for forever. Jesus came and he didn't take up the political powerful weapons of the world in which he lived. And believe me, the government then was a lot worse than it is now. He took up the sword of the word of the Lord and by the power of the spirit and the testimony of a righteous life, he proclaimed it. We're called to be different. And in that is an opportunity, not just to be different, but to be useful to the Lord. Jesus continues in verse three, where he says this. He says that he, God the Father, said to me, you are my servant Israel. And it doesn't mean that, you know, he's not talking to the nation of Israel. He's talking to Jesus. And he's saying, look, what the nation of Israel has failed to do, which is to make me known to the nations, you, my servant, are going to do. Therefore, I will call you Israel. You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And as you start reading through this and just thinking all about all the superlatives and all of the stuff, I mean, you know, he called me from the womb. He, he named me. He gave me the sword of the word by which he created all of the worlds. Like all of these things, you start thinking to yourself, my goodness, the mission that Jesus has come to bring, the mission that he foresees 700 years in advance is going to be absolutely triumphant. And look, it is going to be absolutely triumphant, but not in the ways that anybody expects. In that sense, it's going to be different. And here's the thing. He sees that in advance. Still comes, by the way. But when he sees it, notice what he sings. He says, but I, Jesus, said, I have labored, how? Triumphantly? No, in vain. I have spent my strength for what? For everything and everyone? No, for nothing and for vanity. And if you think about that statement and you compare it to the life of Jesus, just as it played out, That would have been his experience, wouldn't it? 
That's the way it went. I mean, if you think about Jesus, Jesus is born a Jewish first century slave of the Roman Empire and a Galilean Jew at that. And Galilean Jews were sort of second class Jews. I mean, if you remember when Philip finds Nathaniel and he says, oh, we have found the Messiah. He's Jesus of Nazareth. What does Nathaniel do? He laughs. And then he gives the same commentary that every Jew everywhere would have thought. He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus is born to Mary. Mary becomes pregnant out of wedlock. In that first century culture, in that little town, that village called Nazareth, which probably had 150, 200-ish people in it, really conservative, first century, that is scandalous. And what's her explanation? Virgin birth. Look, nobody in her family bought that. I mean, Joseph bought it, but it took an angelic visit for him to buy it, which is about right, isn't it? Nobody in the village bought it. So Jesus, this first century Jewish peasant, slave of the Roman Empire and a Galilean Jew at that, is born, and I'm going to speak plainly, from their perspective as the bastard son of a promiscuous woman who's mentally unstable. Think about his life. It gets even more challenging in that he's perfect. Listen, perfection comes with challenges. How many of you all were the perfect kid in school? You know, like not everybody loved you, you know? How many of you loved the perfect kid in school? Not too many. He's the actually perfect kid. So how odd then was he? How do you think that played out for him in school? How do you think that played out with his brothers and sisters? Jesus is never wrong. What can we do to make fun of him? What can we do to diminish him? What can we do to take out our resentments upon him? What can we do to ostracize him? What was life like? Just continue it through. He's born into a first century Jewish culture in which every male married except him. So what that means, practically speaking, is that upon his bar mitzvah, he must have instructed Mary and Joseph, do not find me a bride in this world. My bride is going to be the people that I collect up from all around this world. Every nation, every language, every tribe, every tongue, they will be my metaphorical bride. I have come for them, and I will take them to myself at the cost of my own blood and life. But an actual bride like some girl from the town? No. My mission is different. So now Jesus is a peasant Jewish slave of the Roman Empire, second-class Galilean Jew at that. He's the bastard son of a promiscuous woman who's mentally unstable. He's the odd kid. He's been proving that for years. And now what's wrong with him? Doesn't he like girls? You ever thought about that? What are all of these things? They are God's grace to us. They're humility of Christ to us. They are the condescension of the Son of God to us. They are on-ramps by which we can identify with Christ and know deep in our hearts that he identifies with us. He spends the first 30 years of his life working as a carpenter, no doubt. He's hidden away, to use Isaiah's language, until he's 30 because Priests were not ordained until their 30th year. 
And he has come as a king, and he has come as a prophet, and he has come as a priest. And so at the age of 30, he takes up his ministry. And how did that go? Well, he was rejected and ridiculed and defamed as a pretender, a blasphemer, and a lunatic. His own brothers and sisters, and this speaks to the authenticity of the record that we have in the New Testament. Like, it says this in the New Testament, okay? Like, if you're just trying to create a hero story, you don't add this. Now, if you're telling the truth, it's there then. His brothers and sisters, and you can imagine this to be the case, at at least one moment thought he was nuts. It's curious that later, James and Jude become two of the greatest leaders in the church. He appears to them post-resurrection, and all of a sudden, he's not the crazy perfect brother anymore. He's God. They give their lives for that reality. But in the moment, was that not painful? He's constantly under the attack of the religious leaders who are always trying to trick and discredit him. He's homeless, depending upon the generosity of the people around him at all times. He says about himself that I, the Son of Man, have nowhere to lay my head. He has no residence. He has no bed. He has no earthly possessions, and he pours his life into this little band of men, okay, one of which betrays him to his death for 30 pieces of silver. So he knows exactly how much his life is worth in that one instance. And on the night that he is betrayed, he washes the feet of all 12 of these guys, knowing that later that same night, all 12 of these guys will use those same feet to run from him in his moment of greatest need. And Peter, who he's already told, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows, follows him. He circles back and he he gains entrance into the courtyard of the household of Caiaphas where Jesus is being examined and abused. And in the presence of Christ, he denies him three times. On the third time, the rooster crows and Jesus looks at him. He hears it. Probably his most intimate earthly friend. And then, you know, of course, he's arrested and unjustly accused and tried and convicted in a complete sham, total fraud, crime he didn't commit. And then he's beaten and he's scourged. He is so physically abused that he becomes unrecognizable. And then he's nailed to a tree naked. And there he is, hanging on a tree. Do you know what that means in the Bible? To be hung on a tree is to bear the curse of God, which is exactly what he did in that moment, but not for himself, for me, for you if you'll have him. He bore the curse of God entirely that he might entirely replace it with God's blessing at the expense of his life. And yet, what did Jesus cling to in all of this? Because he doesn't hide that either. It's the second part of verse 4. He says, yet surely my right is with my God and my recompense with my God. And I don't know about you, but it's really helpful for me to know that when I come to Jesus, I I come to a Savior who knows what it is to despair, who knows futility, who knows abandonment, who knows abuse, who knows loneliness, who knows what it is to be defamed and slandered and misunderstood and mistreated and misrepresented. He understands all of these things. He knows what it is to be humiliated, rejected. He knows what it is on some level to experience failure. And yet what happens next in the story? He's hanging there, and then he dies, and it looks like all is lost. It's over. It's 
it's over. Disciples go into hiding. They're fearful. Now they're next. Everybody leaves. It's like, ah, that's it. Until the morning of the third day when he's raised from the dead, which I think we can agree is different. But it's also instructive. It tells you how God works. And it tells you is that what it tells you is that God delivers ironically. In other words, it's through the greatest defeats in his life and in ours that he brings the greatest victories. It's through the greatest tragedy in his life and in ours that he brings the greatest triumph. It's through the greatest failures that the achievements come. He works ironically. My goodness, he is the God who took the unjust murder of his son and said, you know what, I will accept that as the full payment for the debt that anyone who will claim that payment on their behalf owes me. And then he raised him from the dead, not just defeating sin for us, but in the end of all ends, defeating death itself. It is a remarkable and amazing achievement. And so what do we see when we, when we look into this song and into the heart and mind and soul of Jesus? We see a Savior with a mission for everyone across the globe and across the street and who calls us to that mission. We see a Savior who fights for people, for them, not against them. And who forsakes all of the weapons of this world and the, all of the other things that it's, man, it's so easy to run to. And boy, you want to, you know? I get it. But he fights with the weapon of the word of God. He presents as one who presents with the righteousness of the life of God. And he calls us to do the same. And we see a Savior who knows what despair and futility and failure and rejection and betrayal and humiliation and abuse and abandonment and loneliness and a thousand other things feels like. And who ga- he tells us and invites us to gather up all that is dark and despairing in us and to look at dead in the eye and to realize that in Christ, not only do you have a Savior who can relate to you in all of those things, but who has gained a victory over all of those things by his life and suffering, by his death and burial, by his resurrection, and in and through his plans and purposes for you. All right, it starts getting good right about there, I think. I think that's pretty amazing. Guys, what moves God's heart and occupies his mind and stirs his soul is the salvation of his people through the work of his servant, who is Jesus. And so again, let me ask you, as I did last week, have you personally experienced the salvation that Jesus came to bring? And maybe that's the walk you need to take, you know? And how does every walk start? Whether it's the 500-mile one or my walk off stage here in a minute. Like this. You take your first step. Your first step. And that step might be, come pray with us after the service. We'll be up here to do that. My wife will be up here. She will not be wearing the cute floppy hat, but she'll be up here, and we'd love to talk with you. That step might be coming out on Thursday night, 7 o'clock at Alpha. We have a meal, a video, and a great conversation. Love to have you. What's the step? And then secondly, is Jesus' mission of taking that salvation to the world what moves your heart and occupies your mind and stirs your soul? Because... It ought to be, and that's an invitation. It's invitation into the life and into the mission of Jesus. Jesus is on a mission, and he invites us into it.
So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. Lord, we praise you for a Savior who is greater than all. God, we thank you for a God, as Ryan said earlier, whose attribute is is many, but is humility. He's high because he's the God who comes low. He is holy for he is unlike any of us. Lord, we praise you for the one who left heaven, talk about a step, and entered into earth that he might experience all that he experienced, the spectrum of human brokenness and pain and suffering and difficulty, that he might gather it all up in and upon himself, including our sin, and extinguish it at the expense of his life on a cross. Lord, we praise you for the one who did not stay behind the stone, who did not remain in the grave, but who, as he said he would, came forth bearing life and offering it to all. Give us faith to make the first step toward finding that life if we don't have it. And now, Lord, so capture us with him and the invitation of being involved in what he's doing with the little bit of time that we have in this life. Lord, draw us near to you and then send us out to our neighbors. We praise you and we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.